Hello, everybody. This is Super NES Podcast, episode number one forty. Uh, I'm Greg, your host, as always, and I'm play- um, and this is and this is a special episode. Uh, I've been teasing doing this for a while now, and things finally worked out to work out all right to allow us to happen. Uh, I'm I, um, I'm very pleased and honored to have my very first guest here on the podcast, who I'm going to be doing like an interview with. Um, uh, so I'm most humbled to be joined by a veteran game programmer. Uh, somebody's worked. Somebody's worked on uh, numerous computer systems over the years, going all the way back from the 2600 up to present, uh, present, present, uh, present games. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast, uh, Mr. Dan Kitchen. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Uh, yes, I definitely same here, sir. So, uh, yeah, this is a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. So, um, like so, like so. Uh, I know you've done a lot of interviews recently. I kind of felt this interview kind of supplement those other interviews you've done very nicely. Uh, mm-hmm. So I definitely will uh, I definitely will mention that toward the end of the podcast, so the, the uh, podcast like the, like so our listeners can have a chance to check those out, like for sure. Is also um, was primarily focusing upon Super NES stuff here, but also wanted to ask you some more general based questions. Um, sure. And just like you know, like you know, I understand it's been a long time, so your your memory as it is is uh, you know. Um, you know, just picking your brain as much as I can here. So, um, now start off with. I know a lot of our listeners are going to know who you are, but I'm also I'm also cognizant of the fact that maybe a lot of our younger listeners may not, uh, 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 they may not be, um, may not be as familiar with you as some of our, um, you know, uh, um, you know, as people like around my age are. So, um, so if you don't mind, just kind of doing a quick, uh, a quick introduction to yourself. Maybe some, uh, uh, maybe some of your like um, uh, best known games you worked on that kind of stuff. Sure, no worries. My name is Dan Kitchen. I was a, a uh, designer at Activision in the early 1980s, um, when uh, soon after Activision left Atari, um, my brother and I joined Activision with a few other fellows, and uh, we became their Eastern Design Center. Uh, at Activision, I had the opportunity to work with some of the best people in the business, Dave Crane from Pitfall Lore, um, of course, Gary Kitchen, my brother, was is still a stellar designer. Uh, Bob Whitehead, one of the founders of Activision, and uh, Al Miller, Larry Kaplan. These guys were really the people we looked up to uh, and played their games. And when my brother and I were doing some of our early work in the late 70s and early 80s on the Apple II, um, and subsequently from that, my brother back engineered the 2600 and did Space Jockey and Donkey Kong, uh, we were pretty enamored with Activision their work ethic and the quality of their titles and had the opportunity to meet with them and eventually be hired by them. At Activision, I first released Crackpots for the 2600 and uh, did a variety of other games, including Ghostbusters on the 2600, Kung Fu Master, River Raid 2. Um, I helped uh, do Commando and uh, Kari Warriors, Double Dragon, and uh, then for Atari, I did Crossbow. And eventually, a few years after that, with the second resurgence of the 2600 in the late 80s, I did uh, F-14 Tomcat um, and worked on the My Golf title. So I, overall, I've done about 10 2600 games and then moved on to the Commodore and some of the subsequent platforms after that. Okay, awesome. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you actually have a third brother who's a programmer too, right? Yes, uh, our older brother Steve uh, never joined Activision, but he was a contractor to Activision, and he actually wrote Space Shuttle mm-hmm. for Activision, mm-hmm. and then for Coleco he wrote uh, Carnival, 
and then Donkey Kong Jr. on the 2600, and uh, went off and did other coding after that for a variety of uh, other non-consumer products. That is such a weird quirk of fate to have like three brothers that all became like programmers. It is, you know, and, and we all got into it because my father was quite an enthusiastic electronics buff. Um, he uh, since passed away many years ago, but um, when he was, uh, uh, he in the 20s and 30s, um, he was very much into the wireless radios. Mm. Um, in the 50s, he would build his own television sets. He would build his own radios. So we grew up in an environment where he was building tele uh, television sets. We had oscilloscopes. We had uh, voltmeters. He got us interested in electronics. Uh, and uh, my brother, my older brother, Steve, excelled very, very much. Um, we actually had a, a computer in our old home back in the 60s that he had created out of discrete components. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, and Gary was an incredibly gifted artist who um, was on his way to art school when my brother Steve, who was then working at a uh, New Jersey-based engineering firm, uh, offered Gary a job. And Gary is an incredible electronics engineer and also uh, a game designer. And then I as well, when I left high school, instead of going to full-time college, I enrolled in night school and went to work with Steve as well. Mm. So that's kind of how the, how the three of us got involved and eventually began working with each other in the late 1970s. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely awesome. Uh, so, like, so are you the youngest of the three? I am, yes. Okay, all right, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, you hear tales about every now and then about maybe, like, you know, like a father and son or two brothers working together, but they're uh, working together in the same field, same company, whatnot, but three brothers, that's pretty, you know, uh, yeah, that's pretty, like, unique. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, we were very fortunate to be able to to work together, all be interested in the same thing. And in the early 80s, um, Gary and I started to build a reputation with our games, and we were kind of referred to as the Kitchen Brothers. Mm. So uh, some of our early interviews and magazine articles that we were involved in highlighted us as the Kitchen Brothers. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, but... Uh, yeah, cool. It's very awesome. I mean, like you know, like uh, I mean, it's like you know, um, you know, I grew up a little bit during that, a little bit during those times. I, I, like, I mean, like I mean, I remember a little bit. You know, I was born '76. I was like, uh, so I was like six, seven years old during the heyday, of, the heyday of the 2600 and whatnot. So, uh, but I do remember. I mean, I do remember just how, just how, just how heady those days were. I mean, like, the, I mean, this really was the time that back, uh, the uh, this really was the time of like, the bedroom programmer and like the one or two person teams who could make like successful games and whatnot. So, just. Just yeah, fascinating time. And you guys were, um, you guys were, you guys like very fortunate just to be alive and programming everything during the thick of that stuff. I think. Well, well we were, and we were in fact bedroom programmers. I had learned how to program in '79 by getting my first Apple II and learning assembly language. Gary had done that as well, and I released my first game in 1981 through Hayden Software Publishing, and it was a full paragraph recognition um, text adventure, not unlike the Zork series and mm -hmm. those. Uh, so I did two of those in the in 1981, 82. But it was certainly the, the time where people like Bill Budge, an incredible talent who founded EA with a few other people. I mean, he wrote his first game that was a pinball construction set in his Oh, program. yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I'm uh, fortunate to have a copy of that. And yeah, it was a time when we were really learning um, what gameplay was and how how to do it and 
all the hardware we had to custom make ourselves. Um, fortunately, Gary, Steve, and I were uh, are, are familiar with electronics, so uh, we designed boards that we would help do the design and programming of our, our Atari games before we went to Activision. And uh, fortunately, we were able to to take care of the hardware part because there was no real hardware hardware support. We had to create everything, um, and uh, certainly there was no you know schooling mm-hmm. uh, I'm, yeah. I'm surprised now that people go to college to learn game design but, uh, <laughs> you know that back then we were we were the ones trying to trying to learn it and and critique it and we were the forefront of making mm. it happen well you guys definitely were like uh, uh yeah you know is that uh, um, i was gonna make this point later on but you know this is a great segue of uh, like you know uh, people like you and your brothers and, and, and the people who were around that the back then you definitely were the uh the uh the foundation layers for the whole industry which exists nowadays i mean like video games is a huge industry like even bigger than hollywood is as far as like the money that the money brings in every year so uh so you guys so you, so you guys deserve a lot of credit and recognition for for laying in and for, for laying the foundation for all that stuff because otherwise a lot of people wouldn't have jobs today or um uh uh or just successful or, or, or successful careers if it wasn't for people like you it's funny i was at a set a conference many many years ago and a, a woman walked up to me and kind of saw my name and and her son was there, and she said, "You know, you're the one responsible for my son playing all these video games and wasting his life away." And I said, "Well, ma'am, I'm also the one responsible for helping create a multi-billion-dollar industry, <laughs> and perhaps your son and many other sons will have the opportunity to get employment in that industry." Um, and that kind of kind of shocked her, and she walked away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what to say to that. <laughs> well, it, I, I enjoy seeing all the. All the Facebook posts these days, when we all have to stay stay uh, locked in, in in our homes, mm, yeah. and, and you know, some of them are, you know, I played video games all my life. I, you know, I practiced for this all my life <laughs> just, to stay and then play video games. So. Yes, that is the popular meme going around uh, like right it now. Is. That's for sure. So, um, uh, so like so like so, like so you said like so you said your first successful your first successfully published game was. Like, your game plugs on the Apple II, correct? Correct. Yes, I, that, my first two games were released on the Apple II. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I remember using the Apple II in, in school. That was my very first computer. I, I, I mean, that I cut my teeth on it. I remember that. I remember that being like a very impressive system. I mean, like you know, for you know, as far as the power it had back then and whatnot. I mean, it was expensive, but the games it could do on it like were very impressive. Yeah, it it, it was. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a. It, I think it ran at like a megahertz, maybe, maybe a little bit more. It had, uh, if you could get it, it had 16k of RAM. That was a lot, um, and I know that they were very prominent in schools, um, from Apple, I believe, uh, donating them. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a really crazy system to program, or I should say, to do art and graphics on, because it was a full bitmap screen, and you know, we think of programming in an 8-bit machine. You've got eight bits. Well. The problem is the screen of the Apple is really seven bits per byte. Um, and that was done because when Wozniak designed the board, um, I think it was cheaper and easier for him to do a PC board that didn't have that seventh bit going addressing the screen as it should have. And so he did it a different way. And it was really a funky way to be able to do the artwork. And you only had different color patterns of bit nibbles that you could put up. So I think, you know, two nibbles would give you purple and green and then red 
and blue, um, and you could have white. Um, and of course, the absence of anything was black. So uh, it, it definitely has a distinct look. When you see an Apple game back then, it definitely has a very unique look to it because of that. Uh, yeah, so uh, I imagine that. Pro- I imagine that. I imagine that. I imagine that that your experience programming with the Apple II uh, helped a lot when you started making transi- when you started making the transition over to the Apple. Uh, uh, um, uh, sorry, uh, the Charger One Hundred uh, later on, because I've heard from all the programmers just how difficult of just 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 how difficult of a system um, you know that was programmed for. Yes, and of course, learning sixty five hundred two was imperative because that was the common processor used, uh, at least in the systems that I was interested in coding for. So 6502 on the Apple was 6502 on the 2600. You have 65816 on the Super Nintendo. Um, So yes, back then it was an easy thing to leap over to the 2600. Certainly it is the most challenging console I've ever programmed for, and I I really enjoy it because it's kind of like you're solving a puzzle every time you, you sit to work on it particularly the, the display code. Um, you're, you've got no RAM except 128 bytes of, of zero page. You have no um, graphic RAM to speak of. And what you're actually doing is you're actually starting the TV raster to race aco- across the screen and you're dumping data into registers to be able to match it to the place where the TV raster is. And you do that 160 screens down the screen 160 lines down the screen to be able to paint the uh, the screen of what you're of, of what the consumer is playing mm. um, and certainly I think some of the background that we had in TVs that my dad had uh, taught us that actually helped because the 2600 really really works on the raw um, the raw knowledge of how a TV screen is created yeah that's so a great that point a yep mm-hmm. yeah yeah that helped a bit but it's a unique machine I love working on it. Uh, back in the old days, you know, we would work on it, and Activision was very particular. We had to do beautiful art. We had to do colorful screens. We weren't allowed to do any flicker, so we didn't we didn't we didn't flicker or, or uh, any objects. We were very careful to only have two on a line. Um, whereas, in, you know, in, in the case you could have twos with copies for things like Mega Mania, it was only you know you only have two objects on a line per se, but you've got multiple copies. So it gives the illusion of a lot of of a lot of uh, enemies that you're shooting at, and uh, it's um, it's a very fun system to really cut your teeth on, because I think once you know how to do that, all the other computer systems that I worked on mm-hmm. seemed easier. <laughs> and you know, it's like, yeah. oh, okay, so all right, so I, I have display lists lists in the 1700, or I have so and so in the uh, Atari 400. You know that those were all much easier architecture to, to <laughs> learn than the twenty six hundred. Yeah, I was going to ask you if the twenty six hundred was the most difficult system that you ever worked on, and I think you just answered that question. So <laughs> it is, uh, it is. Although I early on in the early uh, in the middle seventies, Gary and I were working with Steve at a development company, the engineering firm, where we got into the electronic toy business. And um, it was there that Gary designed and patented uh, an electronic billiard game called Bankshot. Okay. Um, Mm. And I had worked on, Gary and Steve wrote code on, and I did engineering and technical work on a game for Parker Brothers called Wildfire. Oh, yeah. Yep. Handheld pinball game. Yep. 
And I ended up writing code for a number of those types of handheld games, and that was pretty mm. that was pretty challenging because um, back then we had no no in circuit emulator system, no ice system. So you would an engineer would design a board and may, have maybe four or five one K chips or whatever the configuration was, and we would write code on a for a four bit microprocessor to basically strobe LEDs to be able to give the illusion that the ball was moving across the play field in a pinball machine or that the ball was hit and moving across a billiard table. And you literally had to program blind because you'd write the code. And then when you're done with an edit that assembled properly, you had to sit there and burn four EPROMs or five EPROMs and then painstakingly stick them in the board and turn on the switch and see if the display lit up correctly. Mm -hmm. And if it didn't, well, you had no way to, 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 to break point or trace or do anything. You'd basically make a printout and sit down and play computer and, you know, try to find the error in your code. And you'd take those four or five ROMs and put them in a UV lamp to erase them. And then you'd have to go on to the next edit, you know, and then burn more EPROMs. <laughs> and it was a long, arduous task to do that. Yeah. Um, it's kind of akin to using stone knives and bear skins. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah. So, so that itself was difficult, but incredibly rewarding. Because mm. again, uh, but um, the 2600 for for console systems um, was definitely the most challenging, um, and I enjoy it to this day. Yeah, that's next. Yeah, that's next. No point just hearing you talk about that because it's like. Um, I've read a lot of books and listened to a lot of interviews. But, uh, uh, do interviews by programmers over the years talking about things like that and it's like it, it and it's like it's so mind-blowing to me the fact that it took you guys so long and so much hard work to, to, to work on something that is really at least by today's standards like very simple um but it never really occurred to us at the time how simple it actually was because like you know things you know those things were cutting edge for the, the cutting edge like for the day and it's like to hear you guys talk about how long it took and the process you had to go through it's like Man, I would, I, you, man, you could not pay me enough money like to go through that to, uh, crap. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. The whole process, the, the whole process is just like amazing. Just to hear you like, uh, uh, you just hear like talk about it. You know, the challenging part wasn't just uh, the time it took, but it was the constraints of the memory. Um, for instance, we, you know, when we were doing games back then, we had 4K of memory to uh, in the EEPROM. I think Gary did his first game, um, Space Jockey, in 2K. And uh, inevitably, I, I wrote Crackbots at, at, uh, at Activision in 4K. But inevitably, as you write these things, uh, it takes a while to get the display correctly because you're doing lots of things on the display. You know, you may see a display of a game with mountains and, and cars and things like that. But on every scan line, there's a lot of things going on in the code that you have to constantly change the display and update it. And inevitably, when you're writing the display code, it looks great. One day you go and you make some changes, you turn it on, and oh my God, the mountains are all green and they're upside down and they're cut in two. And you've got to go and rewrite your display every time you want to add something in to that area of the game. And not only was the challenge to program the machine difficult, but the memory constraints were difficult because we would inevitably finish a game and, you know, you'd have a 4K game and when you're done, you were at four and a half K. Well, you can't sell that. You can't fit it in the ROM. So you would have to take time to sit there and cut a half K out of your code. 
and figure out a way to rewrite the sections to make the game smaller and fit into the ROM that you allocated because the price of memory was expensive. And so if they wanted to hit a certain price point, you know, you couldn't just go and you got to get double the size ROM because then you priced yourself out of the market with games sitting next to it on the shelf at a smaller price. So, um, yeah, some of the most of the time in these games, like the Atari 2600 games, I'd say a good 20% of the time was done at the end to literally cut bytes out of the code, mm. rewrite things differently, but have them do the same thing so that you could fit it in for production. So they look simple, but they were pretty complicated. Yeah, I heard every programmer talk about that. Just the whole, just the whole like Bane and the problem, you know, the problem like trying to find somehow to squeeze a few bytes, a few bites out of the, a few bites out of the code to make it fit into 4K. It seems like everybody yeah. like struggle with that. Yeah, so that's always a challenge, um, and that, uh, you know, that that was also fun. It, you know, the whole machine is like working on a very complex puzzle, <laughs> and uh, it it it's really fun to do if you enjoy that. Uh, yeah, so just to talk about the handheld games, uh, I hear uh, I hear again just for a moment because it's like I remember that being a huge industry back then. Uh, you know, even though I was like so young, I do remember all the advertisements uh, advertisements out there for the games, uh, uh, games out there, and like how big the industry was, and how big the industry was. Uh, like I had a while while I was a kid, I loved it. Uh, you know, I played that game through. Yeah, you know, I definitely spent that thing like hours and hours. I, I use that I use that thing for so, uh, so it's like so. I mean, like just to have, I mean, like that was that was really an amazing pinball like game, like a pinball game. Um, it's a machine to have your palm in your hand. And by today's standards, it's so simple. But it's like, uh, but it's like I was just hooked on that thing for like for, the, for like for so long because because it, it felt like even though it was just LEDs, the pinball the pinball mechanics worked like worked great that game. I thought. Yeah, they were. That was actually a design that was brought to Parker Brothers by an outside group who had a very rough prototype working, and they had hired the engineering firm where we were at to actually execute the game and get it playable and get it made uh, or get it to fit in the size of the processor that they wanted, which was a, one of the versions was an AMC, I think it was an AM, AM, AMI, uh, 4-bit microprocessor, and then another version was on a TI microprocessor. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, the challenge was to make LEDs look and feel like like physical balls. Um, and there's a real trick to doing that based on how long it stays lit in a certain area so that it gives the illusion of gravity and that sort of thing and how quickly it moves from light to light. Um, and we worked a long time on making making the games we were involved in feel feel lifelike uh yeah uh yeah de uh, yeah awesome uh like for sure like in the uh um, you, um, you know, yes, I said, you know, like, uh, I just remember, I, I, yeah, I just remember how, how fascinating that it, it was and it was how great a machine that was because I had a whole bunch of handheld games, but that was definitely my favorite to play. Um, right. do you ever wonder maybe what might have happened if you stayed working in handheld games, like, as opposed to, like, like, like opposed to transitioning over to console games? Well, you know, they had a big heyday in the late 1970s and in mm -hmm. the yep. middle 70s and then to the 80s. Um, and then about the early 90s, um, you know, a lot of the work went over to Japan and China, mostly Japan. And uh, I know that Tiger Electronics really came out as one of the big leaders in that. Um, they moved away from LEDs, went to LCDs. Um, 
I'm happy we stayed with video games because as interesting as that was, um, the quality really went down when you got into the into the early 90s. Um, I mean, some of the Tiger games were respectfully not very playable. Yes. <laughs> some, some of them were just licensed slapping on with a Disney brand or something. Um, and clearly, we knew that, you know, video games was where it was at. Everybody had a TV set and everybody wanted to play video games yeah. or, or so we thought until you know until the uh the fall of 1983 right yeah when when the first crash came right so crackpots which are first first was another game correct yes uh Playing that game, uh, playing that game, it's always struck me as kind of being like very similar to kind of like a reverse kaboom. Did you have any inspiration? Uh, I didn't. Okay. I, I've, I've heard that many times. And yes, I can see where it is a reverse kaboom. Um, actually, I wanted to initially move Potsy at the top of the screen with a uh, with the uh, with the paddle controllers, um, which certainly would have helped make it more like a kaboom style product. But uh, the battle, the the paddle. Um, controllers, although released with the initial game system, um, weren't in, weren't released in some of the follow-up versions of the 2600. And so I thought it would be safer to hit the largest mm. installed base and use the joystick. Right. But yes, it, it definitely had as, has a kaboom, a reverse kaboom feel to it. So where did your inspiration for the game come from? You know, I, I recall that um, in the early days of the Eastern Design Center, uh, we became very friendly with Dave Crane. We're actually still quite friendly. He still works with my brother now, and uh, I speak to him often. Um, I think, as I recall, he was out for a meeting at our Eastern Design Center in New Jersey, and we were in the town of Glenrock where we worked, where we had an office. And I remember going to lunch and seeing some uh, work being done in a scaffolding and watching a flower pot fall from a windowsill that one of the workers had knocked over. And it was just, you know, one of those things where everybody likes to jump, drop things from high distance and see what happens when they break. And I just thought, well, that's kind of cool. So <laughs> I, I, let me go back and play with that. Idea. Uh, and I initially called the game Flower Power and, um, you know, got it running and got it playable and then into the hands of the Activision marketing people. Very happy with the name they picked and the story they picked around it and, <laughs> and thus became crackpots yeah that's a great story like what the inspiration for that kind of reminds me about like david crane's story like about how he got the idea like to program the freeway yes he was at the consumer electronics show in in june in chicago watching a guy dodge across um uh i think it was lakeshore drive hmm. and uh that's that's what inspired him <laughs> about that mine was kind of more of a uh, a Newtonian type thing where he sat and saw the apple fall <laughs> and said, hmm, gravity, let me do something. So Crackpots came out kind of late in 2600s. Um, it did. It came out uh, right, right. right before the crash, actually. Right. Uh, do you ever kind of wish that maybe like, you know, like, um, you know, hindsight being what it is, like, you know, like, do you wish you made, uh, like, do you wish things had aligned, aligned better so that you could have probably gotten involved in 2600 earlier like during its heyday as opposed to being involved toward the tail end of things absolutely yeah yeah absolutely when we were at wixted uh, the the company that did the the design work uh for the electronic games um gary had approached my brother steve and and his partner uh whose name was wixted and um said you know the the atari is a pretty popular system i think we should do something with it and that's when gary went off and back engineered the system and 
learn how to program it and came out with Space Jockey. Um, and then eventually I, I learned through, through his experience and he taught me what I needed to know about the system. And, and yes, I, I do always wish that we were back earlier because I think um, some of, uh, I particularly think some of my games would have done better retail um, because obviously when you had the crash and you walked into a store and I remember doing this, we'd go to the stores all the time to see our titles. Um, you know, in the glass behind the counter, you'd see Crackpots or Pressure Cooker or one of our games. And then you'd turn around and there was a bin in the corner of Atari mm. games selling for $2 or $5. Yep. And keep in mind, it wasn't the educated player who would buy those games. They were parents. And so parents would walk in and say, well, why should I spend $30 on Crackpots when I can come over here and get five games for $5 a piece or six games for $5 a piece? out of this little bin right here. Yeah. And um, you know, it wasn't like the player walked in and said, I know what's better. It was really the parent who didn't know what was better and just picked up whatever they could that was affordable. Yeah. So uh, that was definitely my experience also, because like, you know, like, you know, uh, my experience also, because I was only like about like seven when the crash happened, but it's like, you know, there were games I wanted, but my parents would buy me the cheap games because, <laughs> you know, like you can get like five games for the same price as like one of them. So exactly. Yeah, but, exactly. And, you know, like, and, and to be fair, some of those games, like, were decent, but a lot of those games, like, were just crap, unfortunately. So, um, like, so, yeah, the crash was a very unfortunate thing, but a, a thing, a thing, a thing, but, you know, I, but, I, um, but I'm glad at least that we, the industry at least evolved from that, learned lessons from it and whatnot. Um, you, know, you know, it was, it was a necessary thing. I remember the night Gary and I were in New Jersey in a town called Paramus. And we were driving through and we stopped at a place called Video Shack, which, you know, sold videotapes and things like that. And they sold games. And I remember we looked up at the counter and for the first time we saw a non-Activision, non-Atari game. And it was it was Skeet Shoot by Games by Apollo. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and I since I mean, from subsequent shows through the years after that, I became friendly with Ed Salvo, who wrote that game and wrote a number of the games at Games by Apollo. But that night we looked at that and Gary said, you know, Dan, the industry is done. And he had a real good force, foresight to look at that and say, if this is what people are going to be manufacturing, we're dead because the quality is so poor, but people mm. don't know the difference. And everybody will jump out of their basement and make games for this. Which wow. Which is what happened, which is what brought down the industry. Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, that. Yeah, that's an amazing observation. I've heard that before. Huh? Yeah, he wow. was he was quite prolific with his uh, observation that yeah. yeah if this can come through and make it to a shelf then there's going to be no quality control on anything mm. and uh, that's what, exactly what happened so uh uh yeah so uh speaking about the crash years uh um um you know did you stay so what did you do for employment during those uh, uh during those lean years um so like what's oh, we working on we we were still employed at activision um, as a matter of fact, that kind of curtails into the story of my current 2600 game. Mm -hmm. um, but, but we can leave that for the end of the show. Um, but uh, they immediately took us off the 2600 games we were writing and creating. And they wanted us to focus on more computer-oriented products. So Gary worked on, uh, I think his first game was uh, Designer's Pencil. That was not really a game, but a wonderful tool. And then I uh, had 
for porting that game to the Apple II. And then we focused on games for the uh, Commodore 64 and for the Apple because everyone was kind of moving away from the Atari 2600 and going to the computer games, yep. um, which we had already cut our teeth on before Activision. Um, all the way up until, of course, uh, Nintendo showed up with a little box, a little man named Mario, <laughs> which, cha which changed everything. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. Oh, oh. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, you know, I, just in a comment, like, you know, I'm definitely one of those people, too, because, like, my parents finally got me a computer. Uh, my first computer that they bought me was a Commodore 128 d which is basically, like, an improved 64, uh, right. essentially. And, like, you know, and, and, and like, and, 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 yeah, compared to my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Compared to my earlier consoles, there was no competition. That system just blew it away. It's like you know, it's like you know, I'm biased, but to this day, I still love that Commodore system. But you know, like oh, so many... a, it was a great system. We enjoyed yeah. it. Uh, we worked on a number of games for it. Um, I really enjoyed that system. Right. So, uh, yeah. So you mentioned Mario like a moment ago. So like you, um, um, I guess I can like Super Mario Brothers second that came out. Yeah. Right. Super Mario Brothers. I mean, it, obviously. It was incredible design by by, by uh, Armato, mm. and he, I mean, he, you know, hit the hit it out of the ballpark. He's a genius, and it it, it was the birth of the platformer. But more importantly, is the it was the rebirth of the video game business. Um, and everybody, I remember during the time, a lot of business people, a lot of um, a lot of the suits at game companies that we worked with were very uh, adamantly against Nintendo's policies mm -hmm. yep. because they, you know, they created the system and every game you did for them, you had to sign up as a licensee. Uh, you had to uh, get the game approved. You had to let them manufacture the game only. And they allocated how many cartridges you could buy. And it doesn't matter if you had the rights to say the Simpsons, which Gary and I did in 90, 91, 92. And, you know, Acclaim had the rights, and we did it for them. And if they had sales of a million cartridges they could sell, doesn't mean they could get a million cartridges from Nintendo because everybody wanted cartridges, and and Nintendo was allocating their chips for each cartridge. And so they may say to a publisher, well, we can only give you 200,000. And they did that. They allocated the chips. They were very strict on who got how many games to sell. They were very strict on the quality of the games, and a lot of people complained in the you know, in the head offices of the game businesses and said it was, you know, an infringement on monopolies. You know, they were running a monopoly. They can't do this. But I firmly believe, and as a matter of fact, that that they single-handedly resurrected the video game business because it had to have control. It had to have quality control, and it had to slowly win back the respect uh, and the, uh, the, um, uh, the assurance of the buyers at the stores that they weren't going to get stuck with another mess of millions of cartridges. Right. And so they slowly brought back the, uh, you know, the, the feeling of confidence in the, from the buyers and from the consumers and their, their first party quality was amazing. And uh, yeah, I, I think in those early days when they lived, how many games came out and what they were, um, they were slowly and methodically rebuilding the business. And that's really what, what, brought it to what it is today. They're really solely responsible for the resurgence and growth of the video game business from that point forward with uh, with Mario and the 8-bit NES system. 
So I was kind of curious, uh, curious also, like I know you did some work in some NES games, uh, but how did you get roped in doing stuff for 2600 again? You know, it's interesting. Um, and I kind of thought this would happen. You know, when you, in the early, late 70s, you know, you're playing the 2600 and your little brother or sister, you don't want them to play with you. So, <laughs> you know, by the time the crash happens and it isn't cool anymore, you throw it in your closet. Well, eventually your little brother and sister grow up and now they want to play with it. So that's what happened in the middle 80s, uh, about 86, 87, 88. There was a resurgence. We were selling games and we were working at Activision up until 86. So actually, we just had left Activision and formed our first uh, design firm called Imagineering um, after our love for everything Disney. And um, we were doing games and we were beginning to sell games on our own to people like Toys R Us. And the buyer from Toys R Us came back to us and said, hey, you know, I get customers coming here wanting new Atari 2600 games. Can you do them? And we were like, hmm, well, yeah, I mean, it's been a number of years. So we, at least at, at Imagineering, created a, a label called Absolute Entertainment, where we started to write new 2600 games. And they started to sell at retail. So Dave Crane wrote uh, skateboarding, and uh, um, a chap I worked with wrote title match wrestling, and I wrote F-14 Tomcat Flight Simulator, um, and then I ended up writing for, I think it was for Activision at that late time, it may have been Ghostbusters, but that may have been earlier. Um, I did do Crossbow for uh, Atari, and I think later on, I think around that time I did Kung Fu Master for Activision because they they wanted to get back into the 2600 business as well. And so we had a literal resurgence back in the middle to late 80s, mm. which is very pleasantly surprised by everyone. And, you know, we, we made a good living out of those those games that we did, that second round of games. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it kind of seems a little bit strange in hindsight thinking about it, but also the fact that I also realized that, you know, because they, uh, you know, like, even though I was just a kid back then, I do remember how expensive like how expensive NES games were. So, like, Atari games did offer, like, a, a cheaper way for people to be able to play games and whatnot, even the quality wasn't quite as good. Because it was just active... Yeah, because it wasn't just Activision uh, uh, making Atari games. Um, right. You know, like uh, in television, also had some late games come out during this time period too. So it's like, right. you know, these are, these are systems, that, those systems that were cheaper, you know, like like you said before, the younger brothers and sisters playing them and whatnot, because you can get like a game for how the price, how the price like what like an NES game was selling. So Right, right. Uh, and of course, it was years later, the price of the memory chips were, were cheaper. And so uh, Crossbow I did for Atari was a 16K game couldn't have been conceived of when I was doing crackpots. It was just the, chi <laughs> the chips weren't available and the cost was too high. Right. But obviously four or five or six years later, the, the price of the silicon came down and you were able to get bigger chips for less money. No. And so that also helped the whole 2600 resurgence. And, and they were cheaper because Nintendo had a very high, um, had a very high OEM cost to us. Um, but, you know, they, they were the premium game. They had a good quality and people would pay for that. Mm. So, you know, all of us made money, including Nintendo. Um, and so, right. Any alternative like the new Atari games would be a, a more of a value price for the consumer. But, you know, it was OK for the younger brother who, mm. who if he can't afford a SNES game or a NES yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to ask this later on, but this is a good point to bring it up. Uh, uh, um 
So you like so during this resurgence of Wizard Hundred, like you work on a lot of like arcade ports. Uh, there must have been well, well, uh, well. Obviously, I'm sure there are unique challenges in trying to handle the, like trying to like like try to handle like an arcade port as opposed to making an original game from scratch. So yes, uh, did you find it enjoyable to work to work on a port as opposed to original game? I did. You know, I was still writing code for the Atari, um, but it is much more of a challenge and. Because you have to try to stay true to the to the actual machine uh, arcade version, um, it was a challenge on Double Dragon. That was definitely a challenge to get that. To work. <laughs> Akari Warriors was a bit easier. Yeah, Commando was easier. Um, Kung Fu Master was interesting because when I wrote Kung Fu Master, I actually had an NES sitting on my desk with the NES version of Kung Fu Master, which I really liked playing. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so I didn't really use the arcade port, uh, the arcade. As a reference, I really use the NES version, um, but yes, it's 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 more challenging because you have to tr stay true to the original game, and the original game being an arcade machine, which has custom hardware that can be you know created as the programmers needed, was challenging when you had a limitation and you had created on a game that was made to crew you know made to play pong and combat. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. So yeah, it was it was. It had its own unique challenges, and I, I, I enjoyed them. You know, I enjoy writing a game at 2600, yeah. whether it's an original or an arcade port. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Like it always amazes me the fact that um, you know the fact that the 2600, as you just mentioned, was a, was system created in the late 70s to create to, to basically just play two or three games, and then like over 10 years later to see to, to, or 10 years later to see the to, 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 to see games like to see, to see games to, to see to see late games like see late games like Atari ports and also things like uh, Solaris and a, um, uh, um, and whatnot in the system. It's like it's like damn. It's like I cannot believe this. I cannot believe that this old girls it's like, like like pulling off this complicated stuff. It's like right. it, just, yeah, it was just something amazing. Yeah, tell you, Dave Crane always tells the story, and he was a he was one of, he was the master of learning how to make that machine do things it wasn't supposed to. He tells the story about sitting in the Atari lab, and I, the gentleman who actually created the uh, the, T, the TIA chip that is involved in it and the chipset walked by his cubicle one day, looked at his screen, and said, "Wow, I didn't know my hardware could do that." <laughs> and uh, just shows that, you know, fortunately, it was a, not so much a closed system, but fortunately, the the way the hardware was designed to make it cheap and and uh, uh, to make it at a very good price point to the consumer. I think it allowed us to do some funky things with the chipset and the timing of the screen raster that you may not have necessarily done if they had made it more of a complex machine. Mm. The simplicity of it, I think, gave us the versatility to, to do some things with the hardware that it wasn't meant to do. So, uh, so speaking about David Crane and ports, uh, you worked on the Twisted Hundred version of Ghostbusters, uh, yes. which was a game that David Crane originally, uh, uh, David Crane originally, originally wrote for the Commodore 64. I love that game; like some like uh, uh, favorite games. I, I've, I, I mean, I've apologized to him since then because of the fact that I had a, 
um, borrowed copy of the game, but um, <laughs> uh, you know, but in my defense, I was a kid, so like I didn't really have the money <laughs> to have the money to go out to have the money to go out to, to have the money to go out to to, 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 to go out and buy a new games. So yes. uh, I, I've since tried to make amends for that, but um, yeah. So I. Uh, did David Crane help you at all? Uh, help you at all, like in doing that port? Because that's a very impressive, I think at least, a very impressive effort on the system. Very close to the actual like, computer game. Yeah, thank you. No, I, I, I did the port um, in a very short period of time, about three months, um, because they had to have it done for Christmas. I think that year. Um, yeah, I had some help internally in my office with the uh, music. I think the music was written by one of the guys. Mm -hmm. um, Gary, I think, helped a little bit of some of the code on the map screen, um, uh, but in, but I pretty much did the whole thing and ended up burning myself out for a few months afterward because of the amount of overtime I spent <laughs> getting, getting that game done. But I'm very happy with it. It came out well. Yes, it did. Um, you know, I, I, um, you know, I, uh, I mean, I've always said to my friends like the fact that you know, like this version of the game is super playable. It's almost as good as the, it's almost as good as the original Commodore version because it's so much better than like the NES version, which mm -hmm. should which should have been better because that was a superior system. But it just kind of goes to right. uh, but it just goes to show like how, uh, but it just goes to show that just what a you know, just what a skilled programmer like yourself can do, who knows the hardware, the the hardware, like the hardware, and can just like wring the best out of it. Uh, mm -hmm. to handle a game like that. So yeah, super impressive. So um, um actually actually all your arcade ports I thought were uh, um, I thought were you know I thought were excellent too. Except for Double Dragon. Um I, I, I um I, I do have to admit that one's that one's pretty rough. <laughs> it is and I can tell you that um, I did less code writing on that and more production. Mm. Um, we had a new programmer in our office um, who actually took the bulk of that and I was actually working on another game at the time. Mm. So I produced it with them. I helped write some of the screen displays. Uh, but yes, if I had focused full time on, if I had written that by myself, along with games like Commando that I was involved in and Akari Warriors that I was involved in, I think they would have come out more to the quality of my games that I mm. single-handedly. But I'm still, I still think the effort was wonderful. Um, yeah. He, they did great jobs on those games, and people love them and play them today. I was fortunate enough to be involved and really oversee the development from an executive producer's standpoint and to write some of the code for those games and to write the displays and to help them along as they were doing the systems. But yes, I, I can see that um, it's not the best port of Double Dragon, but it is pretty good for a system that has one button. Oh yeah, sure, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and again, was was made to play pong and on combat. So. Right. Yes, definitely. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, yes, that brings us right. Yes, that brings us pretty nicely right, like right, like to the early nineties. Um, so, like, where were you working, um, uh, uh, like in your career during the, uh, during the late ninety one, ninety two time, the time yeah, we period? Had, um, we had left Activision in eighty six. And we were in a little office, and um, uh, that was actually under a dentist. We were in a basement office. Oh, God. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a little town called Midland Park, New Jersey. And uh, we had moved a few years after that to an office in Glenrock, New Jersey, right by a, a railroad track, which I thought was fun, being a railroad enthusiast. Um, so I was working in Glenrock, New Jersey, at a little office 
uh, in Glenrock and uh, doing NES games. I, I was overseeing the production at that time, um, let's see, of um, Swamp Thing, which was one of the games we were doing. Uh, I was overseeing the production of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Um, I had, let's see, these were NES games. I had written Firehouse Rescue, which was a Fisher-Price game that uh, one of our clients brought to us. Um, I was working on Ghostbusters 2 at the time, and uh, that's where I would have been really stuck in the NES world. Mm. Yeah, so I know during this time period, a time period like during the NES, Super NES years, you, you like were transitioning more into a uh, producer role as opposed to like programming directly. Programming directly. Um, how did you feel about that? Yeah, I would have liked to have gotten more hands on the Super Nintendo. Um, but we had expanded. We had some really good programmers. And there was more of a need for us, instead of focusing on one game um, for you know six months or eight months, uh, we found that it would be we could take that creativity and oversee the production of three or four or five games and help make those really good. Um, and so it was a decision we made to somewhat transition from writing a game into overseeing and producing a line of games. I, I was still fortunate enough to be writing NES games, but things like the Super Nintendo, I was more in designing the game and then um, working on whatever production or design help was needed from that standpoint. Right. As opposed to actually writing in sixty five eight sixteen. Uh, uh, okay. Um, so, do you remember your first time seeing a Super NES and playing one? Um, I do. We had one we purchased, in a we actually got a family com. There was a place in New Jersey that was a Japanese store um, down in Edgewater, and uh, Matsui, I think it was called, and we were able to buy cartridges and games from Japan. That were sold there before mm. they brought before the U.S. versions came to the states, and so we had a Famicom, and uh, I think the first game I saw was Pilot Wings, if I remember. Ah, okay, yep. And that was an incredibly fun game, just to be able to land on the right place. And I think that was probably one of my first NES games that I played. Mm. Um, or, or Super NES game. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, so I know you said. Uh, Flex, I know you just said that you didn't actually program anything directly to Super NES, but you did have a chance to tinker around the hardware like a little bit. Yes. Uh, what did you think about the architecture, the, the architecture and the processing power of uh, like the system? It was wonderful compared to the NES. Mm. I mean, plus, you know, you had other, you had more instructions with the 816 that you could do cool things. Um, I really wish I had sat down and to to actually do a game. Um, uh, I was slated to do some work with Gary on Super Battle Tank, but um, uh, at the time it wasn't really needed, and he was the king of that, uh, having done the NES version. So he went and and, and did Super Battle Tank uh, by himself, and I was involved in taking the um, you know the F14 game I had done and wanted to make a Super Nintendo version, and so that's really where I started playing around with. The until we had hired a chap who was an incredible uh, programmer and made more sense for him to get the most that he could out of the system. And I'll, I'll sit in the background and do the design 
mm. um, and create the screens and work with the artists on what the art should look like and create the scenarios of what bogeys came out where and the mission copy and and really bring the game together right um so that was my my forte in the, in the super nintendo games so this is that uh, turner burn you're talking about right yes that's right turner burn no fly zone yeah that's a very impressive game i actually played that recently uh, um i actually played that recently um the recent like first time uh you know unfortunately the super nes has such a big library that just like the nes the nes the nes like 2600 that there were a lot of good games that just fell through the cracks unfortunately because they didn't get like the wide scale media attention or publishing push or whatever and i think this game is one of them um you know this game is really is really very good i think and you know for anybody who enjoys games this type that really didn't get the attention that should have unfortunately yeah i i agree it's um it did okay at retail, uh, but you know we were releasing the game into a, a large competitive base of other titles, right. um, and uh, and from there, um, I had uh, helped produce and design the Red and Stimpy game, uh, which we did, which was Vidiots, right. um, and that was actually a contract job we had done for I believe it was THQ at the time, right, um, and then. Um, we had done a Sega Genesis game based on Goofy with Disney. And uh, they had offered us after Goofy the rights to home improvement because, you know, they had these rights and they wanted to see if there was a way to, to, to monetize them with a game. Right. <laughs> so they flew us out. We got a chance to meet Tim and, and go to one of the tapings and meet the cast and kind of sit and brainstorm a little bit. And then we went back to New Jersey and said, hmm, you know, it's not always fun to replicate reality because, <laughs> you know, reality is not fun. People play games to escape into dungeons and, and go in, in rocket ships and to fly in space and do things instead of walking around the living room. So it wouldn't be really fun to be on a, on the set of a tool game. But we envisioned how about making it on the back lot where we were with all these sound stages. And over there, they're making it, you know, they're making a prehistoric movie over there. They're making. And right. so you get involved in, in wandering the these sound stages on a packed lot, and so that was the concept that Disney liked. And uh, from there, we created uh, Tim's Tool Time uh, Home Improvement game. Yeah, I played that game uh, uh, like a while ago, like several years ago, and uh, and uh, and uh, man, that is a weird game. But it was uh, it, it was certainly a reach. I can tell you that. <laughs> Uh, you know, when they came to us and said, make a game out of power tools. Yeah. Probably, you know, you could do it today more easily because, you know, it, we used to sit in the old days and say, um, you know, oh, wouldn't it be funny if there was a game? And we would joke, you know, a game about, uh, you know, um, um, managing a restaurant. And so people come <laughs> in and you got to put up seats and then you got to take their orders. And we would joke about, well, that's not really a game. You know, we'd laugh it off. And of course, you have you know Cooking Mama and all these other games that do really well now. Sims, um, so sure you could probably evolve a very cool power tool game in this time period. But you know, but back then it was really all about video games, yeah, and arcade games. So. Right. So you did a lot of work during the NES Super NES days, uh, like in like in trying to make games based out of like uh, uh, like trying to create games based out of like existing licenses, like Home Improvement, Simpsons, uh, etc. Uh, I've heard 
Um, I've heard it's a very difficult project to do because you're under like you're under severe constraints about trying to get approval for all your stuff, uh, flavor stuff, and whatnot. How are your experiences were like trying to like make games uh, based upon those uh, you know already existing and popular licenses? You know, it, it is always a challenge because you are under the restriction of the licensor. Um, uh, the most interesting story I had has to do with uh, the Goofy game. We did Goofy with, we acquired the license from Disney, and we were creating a Super Nintendo game. And um, we start, signed the game, we started creating it. And about three months into development, Disney representatives came out and wanted to take a look at the progress. And we showed them, you know, the game had to level up with Goofy walking around doing things. And, uh, you know, they said, you know, the backgrounds are beautiful. They said, but Goofy is not very fluid. And, you know, Disney animation has to be very fluid. A lot of squash and stretch and squishing. And we knew that. So I said, okay. I said, you know, we would love to create the, the character like we did for Aladdin, where, you know, Disney Aladdin on the Genesis was done by David Perry, and they had a, a, a group of Disney hand animators sitting at their animation wheels creating these hand-drawn animations and making Aladdin look amazing and all these characters. So I said, you know, may we have access to that? They said, well, what we need you to do is we need you to make Goofy look like Aladdin and use hand-drawn animation techniques to, to do this. But we're not allowed to have any of our animators work with any third-party people. So no, we can't give you any Disney animators, but we, wanted, we want you to make it look like Disney animation. <laughs> so that was a challenge. That was, yeah. like, that was probably the most difficult. That was like, hmm, okay. Um, <laughs> fortunately, as Providence would have it, um, one of my artists, an incredible artist by the name of Tom Toby, uh, who's still in the industry, Tom had gone to a school in New Jersey called the Joe Kubert School of Animation. And there he learned original animation, uh, hand-drawn animation technique. Well, one of his teachers that he introduced me to, uh, that I became a good friend with, was a chap called Milt Neal, who was in his 80s. Well, Milt was one of the original animators at Walt Disney. Milt worked on Dumbo. He worked on the Three Cavaleros. Um, he actually created the image of Howdy Doody for the Buffalo Bob show. Um, so he was he was at Disney, I think, for about 10 years during the 40s and really knew how to make... I mean, this was a Disney animator. You know, this is the guy who drew Dumbo. So, you know, how, how, can you get much better than that? So I was very happy to, to get acquainted with Milt and we became good friends. He passed away a few years later because he was quite old. But uh, but we actually did a number of animation frames for Goofy. And Milt did all the keyframes. And my, my friend Tom did all the tweening and all the in-between frames. And we scanned them in by hand and we fixed them up art-wise. And we made them really beautiful. And about two months after our initial meeting, Disney flew out to want to see the progress. So they kind of flew out, and we sat them in our conference room. I flicked on the switch and said, here you go, take the controller. And they were floored. They said, how in God's name did you get this to look so Disney-like? And I said, well, you told me to get a Disney animator, and you give me one. So I found one, just like, <laughs> just like 30 minutes down the road. And they were amazed. They, some of them had heard of Milt, and they were amazed that he was located in New York, that we had found him to help us make the game look better. Mm. So, um, But in other cases... You know, most of the most of the games we did that were licensed games, um, we were hired to do. 
while we had absolute entertainment our publishing company um, in the early 90s still um, that was our publishing label that we put out games to toys r us under our own name and we sold directly to the stores but we still had imagineering which was our development company and people like game tech and thq and acclaim and other companies would come to us to make games for them and they would often come with a license like um, like Acclaim did. They said, hey, I have the rights to the light to The Simpsons. Have you ever seen it? And yes, we did see it. And, and we were fortunate enough to do four or five Simpson games for them. Um, and in those cases, yes, you, you always had to work within the constraints of a licensor. Um, some were easier than others. Um, but uh, that was always something that you were fighting to maintain the right. quality and the requirements of the licensor so it added another level of stress and another another level of difficulty and sometimes delay right yeah yeah, uh, yeah so talking about companies um um uh, you dealt with Nintendo previously already back in the NES days, and you would deal with Nintendo again later on for later systems. Uh, what was your experiences doing with Nintendo uh, like during the Super NES period, as far as like, as far as trying to work with them to get to study games released, like whatnot? Like, were they easier uh, than in the NES days to deal with, or what? Yeah, we always thought they were wonderful. We had a great relationship with all the tech people there, with the people at LockCheck, with the people at the QA department. Uh, we had a good relationship uh, with the management. Gary, my brother, knew Howard Lincoln well. Um, we, I think we even met Arakawa, who's over from Japan. Um, yeah, we always thought they were a very wonderful group to deal with. Um, so we had no complaints whatsoever. They, okay. were, they were just great. Oh, okay, cool. Um, so out of the Super NES games that you oversaw the production of, uh, like I said, one that's a particular favorite of yours that you have a soft spot for? Um, well... I would probably have to say it would definitely be turn and burn because mm. I've I have a love of aviation. Right, yep. Um, and of course I, I worked in I worked about that time period uh, with a group which was located in the East Coast called uh, the Confederate Air Air Force. And what we would do is we would fly into air shows on B seventeens and B twenty fours and B twenty fives. And I would work with the crew on these World War II aircrafts and fly them in. And then we would hop out of the aircraft in military garb, World War II uniform, and give people tours and speak to the veterans and be involved in whatever the aircraft was, was involved with for the, um, for, for the day. So I had a love of aviation military aviation. And so I'd say Turn and Burn was probably my favorite. Um, um, uh, I worked on Casper, which was a small, low-budget game for high-tech expressions. Uh, that was kind of fun. It wasn't really a game we had a lot of time to do, so it wasn't a very good design. We had a literally a couple of months to do. Um, it was an unfortunate opportunity where we, we got the rights or we got the project from uh, the company way too, too, later, too much later than we should have. Um, uh, and there are games that I had worked on that, you know, back then, the mentality was to make games hard. Oh, yes. And I, I look back at some of the Activision games, which I think are incredible games. But you put in something like uh, Mega Mania, and you will be lucky to get around the first <laughs> objects before. You know, I don't think I've ever made it to the fourth line of objects. You know, there's eight of them, I think, or eight. And then, you know, they get really increasingly difficult the next time around. 
And then the next time after that, they're really freaking off. Um, like Chopper Command, you know, you, you get by three waves of the enemies and you're mm -hmm. up to 10,000 points, but then it gets super, super hard. Right, yeah. And I thought in, you know, some of those games would, would do well if they were less, if the ramping up was less hard yeah. at, during the ramp up. Mm -hmm. So you, you had more time experiences to play the game, more time to enjoy it. And our, some of our Super Nintendo games, like Coming Through, like Red and Stimpy, particularly um, Rocky and Boinkle, which I loved working on and designing, or co-designing with one of the guys in the office. Um, we, we Back then, we made some of our games too hard. Mm. And, and they haven't held well to the test of time because of it. It's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, that's probably... I mean, that's probably, as you may be aware of, that's an ongoing debate these days about, like, you know, like, uh, because a lot of people, because a lot of people, like, around my age who grew up playing games our, our whole life, uh, a lot of them, not myself personally, but a lot of people complain that games these days are, are too easy. But the way I argue is, like, you know, the, the gaming base is so much bigger these days. I mean, back then, you only had, like, a small, dedicated group of, uh, um, a group of people buying and playing games, and they expected tough games because, you know, A, they're used to playing games, B, games were expensive, and they could only get games like once every few months or so, so you want a tough game that would last for a while, keep their interest. Nowadays, there's so many games out there, games, you know, games are so cheap, games are plentiful, uh, I mean, like, you know, and like, and, and um, you know, and also a base of people who play games has expanded, has expanded so much, it's like, it's, it's, I was, I was like nowadays in hindsight in hindsight they like, may be like yeah we made those games too tough uh, you know but I also argue like you know that was that was the you know that was the times that you guys programmed for and and, and there wasn't anything wrong and, and there wasn't anything and there wasn't anything like wrong with it because you know those were the you know like you made the games to cater to to, to, to cater to cater to people to people who were gaming back then so right. uh, but so um yeah so, so yeah it's interesting you say that because yeah uh, because uh, yeah you know I'd agree the games are hard but I wouldn't say they're the hardest games out there period um right, right. Um, you know just to be like you know just the period that you programmed for. Right, and they were core. They were the core, uh, the quote core gamers. Then, I mean, they were mostly mostly male uh, demographic. They were mostly teenagers or younger, and they played the games. And yeah, they were they were expecting hard games because I think they were core gamers. They they were used to playing games, and now you do have such a broad audience of of teens and women. And uh, not that women don't play games really well, but but you have more of a a general audience for older players, you know, for people uh, my age, people older than me, uh, grandparents are playing and other people are playing all these different types of games. I think you have to make them easier so that people can enjoy the experience uh, more so. And, and you know, that was the time period of Twitch games. You know, you were jumping, you were pressing that button, you were trying to maneuver every slight part to get the mushroom or get whatever you were getting Mario. And it was really, really Twitch games, and and now you have a whole selection and genre of there mm. that that are easier. May see, uh, yeah. I, I've just had I've had time to reflect over the years and thought, you know, some of those games that I I produced or, or programmed, I could have made easier. <laughs> and in hindsight, I'd like to go back and make. Them. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Look, they stand the test of time, nonetheless. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, do you remember? Uh, like, were there any games or projects or projects that you guys worked on for the Super NES during this time period that maybe didn't come out or only got to, or the flight only got half finished or prototype stage or anything like that? You know, we had some games in the lab. Uh, I have more of that on the Atari side. Mm. Um, I had three games in the Atari side 
that one was half finished, um, one was completely done that I don't have a copy of that I could do something with today. And then there's the Keystone Capers 2, which we'll discuss later. Um, on, this, on the NES, uh, we had tinkered around uh, with some other military-style games um, and some other platformers we were playing with. But, you know, for the most part, during that time period, we were always busy with games for other publishers. Mm. So we didn't have a lot of time to sit and play around with the system and create games that we would get halfway through and not finish. Right, yeah. Um, you know, one game that I worked on with a programmer was based on uh, Family Dog. Okay. Steven Spielberg, yep. you know, cartoon that I think only lasted a season. Right, I remember it. Um, and we worked with Amblin on that, and, I, and then I consequently worked with Amblin years later on a PC game based on the Casper movie, I think from the 90s, with Bill, Pol with Bill Pullman and, and um, Christy Ricci, I think, was in it. Um, so we had a chance to work with Amblin on Family Dog. They were wonderful people. They were very creative. Uh, and I think it was a very well-executed game and very close to the brand. Uh, very honored, for very you know, kind of honored the brand well, but it's certainly a game that, for all intents and purposes, I don't know if people know even exists. Mm, right. Yeah. So yeah. Speaking about like obscure games, uh, the uh, the last Super NES game we haven't mentioned yet was the Rocking Bullwinkle game, and it's like, yes. it's like I remember watching that cartoon as a kid. That that cartoon was around for a long time. It's like it's like the fact you guys actually made a game based on that in the nineties when the cartoon was no longer production was just amazing to me. Yeah, Jay Ward had done that. You know, I grew up watching that in the 60s and 70s. Um, I loved Rocky and Bullwinkle. And uh, it was just one of these trade shows, I think the licensing show we were at, where we were looking for brands to create games for, and that came across our desk, and, you know, the price was right, and it was kind of an older title. I don't even know if... Uh, I think Cartoon Network was out then. They may have been playing it on some of the some of the cable channels. It was still on rerun. Um but uh, yeah, that was a that was a, a funny story. With that, is I remember we signed the license, and I had to do the design of the. And I remember that a day when I I accumulated all the videotapes of the Rock and Bullwinkle show, and I spent like ten hours watching every tape. Wow! And watching every episode it was a lot of them. I don't know. If, I don't know if I got through it all in that one day, making notes on what what I could use in the game. And I remember that night went out to dinner with my accountant and his wife. Um, and so we're in a fairly nice, expensive restaurant. And so he's talking about his M&A that he's doing that. And the people he's meeting and the, you know, the issues he's having with the mergers department. That and all. And, so, and then uh, he looked at me and said, so how was your day? What did you do today? <laughs> and I just sat there and smiled and said, you know, I just spent the last 10 hours watching the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon and that's all. <laughs> and his wife kind of looked at me like mine until she realized what I did for a living. It was a pretty funny comment to make, quite a, quite a posh setting. Um, but yeah, it, it was a game that I really liked. Um, I designed it with another fellow at the office who was also an enthusiast. Uh, we also did a Game Boy for that um, a few years earlier, um, um, which is an interesting story that. Um, um, I had a friend who was an artist at the company, and he had a friend who was an artist in the ad agency. And um, he would do ads on billboards and stuff. And we saw his work, and we said, 
dude, your stuff is really good. I said, well, we think you should try to get into the game business and try to get into the into the into doing art for games. And he said, you really? And I said, yeah. I said, you should really do that. So we hired him, and his first game was Rocky and Blue Game Boy. And he did great artwork and worked with us for maybe, oh my goodness, maybe maybe seven, eight years after that. And he consequently went to California and went to work with, I think, uh, Sledgehammer. And he eventually became the, the, the gentleman who ran the uh, Call of Duty games for oh. Activision. Oh. Uh, his name is Glenn Schofield. Hmm. Glenn was one of my artists that I hired in probably 1989 or 1990, who uh, his friend was working for us, and we saw incredible promise in his art, at least the, the hand stuff he was doing, and said, you computer? And so we kind of broke him into the game business, and he and I worked on Rocky and Boy. Uh, I remember that we worked on Rocky and Boy and Gold, the Game Boy, and he did an excellent job. And uh, and uh, he as well was an enthusiast of Rocky and Boy. So he was also involved in. Somebody. Oh, so cool! Awesome! Yeah. Just a little sideline: how somebody yeah. came into the business and had had the chance to work with him, and he's gone off and done such incredible, monumental work since. Then. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I've heard definitely. Uh, you know, just how you know, you know, despite how big it is, uh, um, you know, I, you, know, I, I've heard numerous stories, uh, stories, stories, like about how how close and tight knit that the game community, uh, as far as programmers and programmers and designers are, is even like this day. I've like how many folks know one another or worked with one another in the past or whatnot, and it's like you know, always cool to hear about. Yeah, it's very cool to to. Uh, to I, I get people sometimes out of the blue. I was a there was a chap. I was. Um, looking to do some contract work with my current company, and I ran across a guy who, uh, as an artist, uh, an activist, uh, absolute, in the early 1990s, and he is now running a development studio, and, uh, uh, and it was just amazing to say, hey, I remember you. We used to work <laughs> together in that collateral. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. Uh, it's just a lot of fun to to run into people you worked with so many years ago. So something else about Rocky, I was just thinking about, and this probably will apply to other games too. But it's like, um, you know, like when you're actually when you're actually programming or thinking about or th- uh, programming or thinking about or thinking about making designs for games, whatnot. You mentioned doing research by watching the by, um, uh, uh, by watching all the Rocky episodes. I um, I remember there being a Rocky game, also the uh, Rocky Boring game that came up in television as well. Uh, did, did you ever play past games based upon like for, uh, based upon franchises or ideas to see you want to maybe get an idea of what worked, what didn't? Make sure you didn't like copyright infringe or uh, infringe ideas or anything else like that. Oh sure, yes. I mean I do that, you know, to this day in different genres, and I'm actually involved in board game design uh, for tabletop games, and I do the same thing. I look at games in a similar genre, but sure, we we would look at a game. You know, back then, like doing The Simpsons, there weren't any Simpsons games. You'd play other platformers, right. get an idea of what worked, what didn't. Um, I don't recall playing the Rock uh, television game. Um, but yes, we could, when, when, when possible, we certainly would look at competitive games and see what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, not to, not, not, not to plagiarize them, but to get a feel of, well, I was thinking about maybe the aircraft would move this way or this way and this kind of situation. Let me see how they did. Mm. See if they pulled it off, or maybe look at you know how they 
executed some gameplay that I could now learn that you know how to how to how to build on that right. in my product. So yes, we certainly did that. Uh, not in the case of Rocky and Bullwinkle, but certainly in other games. Yeah. So um, I, I I guess so. Actually, that's a great point. Just kind of like you know talking about like you know playing games because like uh, um yeah because you've always been uh, like you've always enjoyed playing games as much as programming them. If I correct. Correct. Yes. Um, so I know some programmers just pretty much do it like for you know it's kind of strange, but you know, uh, but you know, I've listened to I've listened to, I've listened to interviews with with other programmers who've been like, well, you know, I like I like programming, but I never actually like play the games or like you know, uh, uh, um, and it's like you know, it, it all and I was struck me as being like, it's so strange that you're working that you're that you're working on one side of the industry, but you're not even touching the other half of it because it's like how can you how can you get a sense of what actually works the game or if you're not actually like involved, uh, 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 you involved like about the side of the table. Um, because it's like you have to kind of have perspective as to how what makes a game fun to be able to work on it. I would think so. Um, you do. You, that is certainly yeah. You you do have to play games, particularly on this console or in the genre that you're trying to create. You want to see what worked and you want to learn about the competition, but just get a feel for the immersion that puts you in that type of game, because you want to capture that. Um, you want to capture that passion. Or that that feeling of what players enjoy about that title. Um, I'm a very passionate creator, so I, you know, I would I would write 2,600 games if I couldn't sell them today, just because I love creating and so I, I love love doing that. But um, you're absolutely right. And I found in my career other people's who other people in the companies that I worked with who knew what played really well, separate from the programmers, were the game testers. Mm. And in my, in my career, I was able to elevate a number of game testers to the position of game producers simply because they played so many games and they played our games and they just played so many games in general that they knew what made a game fun or not. Right. And so it's interesting that they they spending all that time actually, in many cases, helped promote them to a better position in the industry. Yeah. And I found that they certainly were a wealth of knowledge. Uh, when I went to them and said, you know, this kind of work, what have you seen in other products? And uh, if I had played the game, most assuredly one of them did. Yeah. That was a competitor product. So. Yeah, that's a great point you made about game testers because it's like, you know, I have a friend who used to work in that field and like, you know, I'm sure it's very different now compared to like back then, but it's like, you know, like, uh, so for the game tester, like you're playing a game for... So yeah, like you're playing a game like for so many hours, like you probably know it uh, inside, outside, and better than even the programmer does at that point, uh, because of all the time and effort that you're putting into it. And it's like, you know, people, you know, people kind of think that game testing is an easy job. It's not. I mean, my friend could tell you, <laughs> no, it's, it's like you know, yeah, it's a lot of long hours, long hours, little pay, and not much reward. But uh, yeah, the skills definitely could come in handy, could come in handy later on if you want to like move up in the career field. So, and, and you're trying to play the game differently than the way it should be played exactly if they're trying to break their it. job is is to break it right yeah. right go and do the things that it wasn't made to do jump at the time that wasn't expecting you to jump go to that corner of the screen and do things that you're not usually going to do as the player yeah. to see if you can find a problem in the code that would cause a bug or you know ultimately a crash unfortunately yeah. so yeah, yeah. yep uh, yep and like even all the work they did, I mean, like you know, like nowadays it's insane. But this is it's, it's it's insane. To even back then, the Super NES days, it's like there. It was like, but it's like almost every game has like you know 
even though even though it got released and tested professionally and whatnot, there's still like bugs, um, like you know ways to break the game, glitches, that kind of stuff that slipped through the um, slip the game testers. So it's like so it's like I'm more tolerant about like finding bugs in modern games because it's like, well, the scale the scale about trying to test a game now is ten times greater and harder than it was back then. And like you know, look at back right. then, all the problems they had back then trying to make these games perfect. It's like you know that's why speedrunners can like you know like go through Zelda in like forty five minutes because they found bugs. You know that originally escaped Nintendo's, um, you know, observation back then. Right, and what Nintendo used to require back in the NES and Super NES days is when you submitted the ROMs for approval, you had to give them a videotape of the entire game being played, uh, because they the quality they wanted to make sure the quality was there, and and more so to make sure there wasn't any offensive content there. So right. inevitably, the best person to make that videotape was the game tester. Right. So they always made the game tape. So if it took you eight hours to play the game, they sat there for eight hours and they made, made yeah. the tape to show every screen and every possible animation and whatnot. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's ironic how uh, I'm sure testing is much more difficult on those incredibly complex open-world games. I can't even imagine, uh, you know, the amount of people. Well, that's why... I used to work for a company that was based in India and we had a whole you know, team of 30, 40, 50 people that we would contract out to companies to do, you know, testing because mm. when you start going to things like PCs, you know, you have different graphic cards, you have different configurations, you know, you're, when you're out of the console area in PC business, there's just a wide variety of things you have to test for that people do not have the, the, the same systems that are required. They don't have every graphic card. They don't have every, even back then it was, you know, what version of the Game Boy do you have? We need to test it on this new version of the Super Nintendo that came out, you know, in the second batch. You know, we'd have different versions of the actual Nintendo hardware to do the testing in to make sure it worked on all the games, systems. So, yeah, but testing uh, and, and, and the QA department certainly was a great source of people who were um, helpful in making the games tweaked and and fun so speaking about having to submit the game for approval i know the es uh like i know the esrb came about during the time period that, that you work in super nes did you have to yes. submit um what was the process so what was the process like with working with them it was pretty easy initially you know it was the same kind of thing sending over a tape sending over uh images sending over paperwork on the game they would review the actual game and review the tape and then give you a, a rating um, which you uh, put, or Nintendo, as, as it were, put on your box um, or put on the packaging. Um, it, it became, it was pretty easy to work with them back in the early days. It, there, were, there weren't too many snafus. Cool, okay. Um, so do you have any other favorite stories and memories uh, during this time period, maybe, that you want to like share? Um, let's see. Well, we, um, you know, we did, we did a lot of games and about, about 1992, I think it was, um, we were fortunate enough to, um, to, to have a lot of attention from investors. And about that time, we realized that with our current sales and our sales forecasts, we could take the company from a private company to a public company. And so that entails taking a company public and we, uh, we signed up with a, an underwriter group, and, and Gary and uh, Jim, our head of business and legal, kind of ran the road shows and went around the country raising funds. 
um, for the company. And eventually we did go public and was on the NASDAQ stock exchange for quite a number of years. Um, there was a funny story where we went to pick up one of the investment checks um, in New York. And I think Gary and I walked out of the place with a $12 million check. Wow. And we went to the, we went to the car dealership, realized we didn't have enough change between us to get the car out. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think the car garage to get the car out of the garage, but yet we're holding a $12 million check in this pocket. Um, <laughs> that was always fun. Um, now we had, I had great times during that period. We had, you know, we had a large, after 91, 92, we moved to a larger facility in, in New Jersey. We had a nice large office space and, um, you know, we ran the company, I, I, at least in my department, creative development. We ran the company as a fun place. And so I was working intimately with a lot of the investors and the artists um, and the programmers, more so the artists and the, the, the QA guys. And we would just have a blast. Like at night, when everybody was gone, we had these, you know, big lab rooms full of cubicles. I would go out during the day and buy these really cool nerf guns and mm, yeah. at night we would turn off all the lights and we'd break up into teams and we'd you know run around the office <laughs> which was multiple floors and multiple and ducking behind various uh, cubicles and we'd, we'd have you know nerf wars um we we had some great times and during that time we also did a game on the sega cd um with penn and teller and uh, uh yes Quite a yeah. while they were in our office uh, doing the filming bits and then doing the design bits. And it was just, you know, it was a really fun, creative time yeah. to be making games. And I just have a lot of fond memories of the people I worked with and and the things that uh, that we enjoyed doing as a group together. Yeah, that story about that Penn and Tower games, um, you know, has been like well publicized by, uh, publicized by, by this point, but it's a shame it never came out. You know, we had finished it. We were... Um, one of the things that helped uh, the downfall of our company, I don't want to say helped, one of the things that led to the downfall um, was that the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis were kind of weaning at that point. The Sega CD had come out to try to save the Genesis. And, you know, the, the PS1 wasn't really out. Um, and there was, you know, between systems, there sometimes is a lull with you know, purchasing of games or game buying going on. And so we kind of hit that at the end of the cycle of the Super Nintendo Sega Genesis. We had a few titles that did really poorly. Um, one of the titles that we did that actually was a few years before, I think, but it led badly to our bottom line and our, our, our balance sheet was that um, we were offered to do a game for a film. And actually, the company, the the studio, wanted to use Gary's um, Super Battle Tank on the Sega on the, on the Super Nintendo, and um, we said that sounds great, and you know we'll, we can do that. And the studio said, well, it's a it's a Robin Williams with Barry Levinson as a director, and it's coming out at Christmas, and it's a it's a movie about toys. And we said, wow, that's cool. They said, you want the license for really cheap? We said, sure, yeah, we'll. we'll, we'll we'll do games based on that brand and, and, you know, we'll do the games for the movie. And we were not allowed to see any information about the movie. We never got any daily. And it was kind of all done in secret. 
we did these games. We, you know, gave the footage to the studio and we made these, you know, Dave Crane was kind of the lead designer and made games uh, called, you know, based on the movie called Toys. And, you know, we went to the film all excited at the premiere and we saw the film and we walked out and said, holy crap, <laughs> that is the biggest piece of crap we think we've ever seen. You think Barry Levinson and Robin Williams is going to be hilarious and wonderful. And uh, we did, we sold, we made a lot of those games. We made way too many of them. Interesting. And uh, I remember during that time period, normal game, Toys R Us, that we did was selling, you know, 150 pieces a week. Uh, and, and all the Toys R Us's around the country. I remember when Toys came out, we shipped it and we got our report back a couple of weeks later. You know, how many units are we doing in Toys R Us? Uh, nationwide, um, I think we sold six units. Mm. So um, we that we sat on a lot of inventory, a few games, really, really drove us into bankruptcy. Um, yeah. And during the time we had actually just finished Penn and Teller, the day we received the gold discs back from Sega for the Penn and Teller game, we had to file bankruptcy because one of our factors, which is a company that advances you money when you build games and then you pay them off from the sales of those games, one of the factors got together with another factor and together they forced us into bankruptcy. We may have been able to save the company if we had been wise to downsize and whatnot, but we never had that opportunity. Mm. And I remember the discs for Penn and Teller came in that day, and it was an incredible disappointment to everybody involved, especially a, a chap who has since passed away, who was a very good friend of my brother and I, who was the main main designer of the game, of the overall game, who was very good friends with Penn and Teller, and was the who really conceived the whole product. Um, I had produced a number of the product. Uh, components, but he really was the one who was the, the cheerleader and the leader of, of the project. He was just devastated. And so, uh, interestingly enough, 20 years later, which uh, was um, in 2015, I contacted Penn and & Teller and spoke to them and tried to negotiate for six months the rights to bring Penn & Teller Smoke Mirrors to the, uh, to the uh, current platforms and to the uh, the mobile games because i said you know we have we did this game with you i did years ago it never got released uh let's bring it out now finally you know the game that took 20 years to come out and we'll dedicate it to our friend barry who was the, who was the real uh leader of the game who was the real real guy who conceived it and made it all come together and after about six months of negotiations they came back and said you know we kind of like that the game is in this underground status because that's really a lot of what they're all about. And so they said, eh, we don't want to release it at this point. Mm. So the game the game never came to mobile. Um, and I was very pleasantly surprised to see that a, um, a comedy group in Canada has uh, the Desert Bus for Hope um, charity right. yep. every year. Um, it was so funny. Just around that time in 2015, one of the guys I worked with at uh, another company called Majesco, I kind of had uh, regrouped with him to work together on some projects. And and he didn't know the work I had done early in my career. And I told him about Desert Bus, and he, he, he came the next day and he said, here, my nephew just bought this online. 
and it was a desert bus t-shirt <laughs> i said i said oh my god your nephew knows what desert bus is and uh sure and I, i'm very happy to see that the group in canada has raised millions for children's charity by having the desert bus marathon um so some of the work that we did that never got out actually benefited a lot of people <laughs> yeah uh, uh, the, the, yeah it's pretty impressive just how many ports desert bus have been made recently there's even like 2600 version of it uh, uh out. There's a 2600 version. Of yep. It. Yeah. Yep. So. Done by one of my one of my friends who I met uh, recently. So. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool.